All right, Ephesians 1, verses 15 to 23. And I'm reading from the ESV. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the, works, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over the church, over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the opportunity to gather together today to, uh, to read your word, to learn from it, Father, to have a little fellowship as well, Father. We uh, just pray that um, you bless this service. Bless me as I open up and preach your word, Father. Help me to, uh, to not preach heresy. Help me to preach what's proper and what you would like to, for me to get out to the congregation here. And uh, I just pray that uh, everyone here would understand and that they would grow, Lord, in some way in you, Father. We thank you so much and pray this in your name. Amen. All right, be seated. All right. So last summer, I did a sermon on verses 1 to 14 of chapter 1. And I thought it might be good for us to do um, a quick recap on what we learned from that section before we look at today's passage. We won't spend too much time there, but uh, remembering that section will definitely help our passage make a little more sense. And so the main thing, or the core lesson, if you will, from 1 to 14, was that God really, really loves his people. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew, a Gentile, rich or poor, a 21st or 2nd century Christian, God loves his church. And everything from about verse 3 onwards is part of this, this rich, awe-inspiring list of the things God has done to express his love for us. All right? verse, uh, verse 3 says that those in Christ have been given every spiritual blessing. Not just some, but literally all of them. Every single blessing there is to give. It's, uh, it's kind of crazy. All right, verse 5. We as believers get to be adopted as his own children. Right? You, are, you are automatically welcomed in as part of the God of the universe's family when you're saved. Verse 6, we've freely been given this grace. There's no charge to it. 7, we've been redeemed through what was the biggest, biggest sacrifice in the history of the world, Jesus on the cross. And through it, our sins are forgiven. And this list just goes on and on and on, all right? We've been given wisdom, understanding, and inheritance, and the Holy Spirit who seals us as God's own, right? There is no comparison to how much God loves us. It is truly a one-of-a-kind love. And so in a very, very nutshell summary, that's what 1 to 14 was about. 
But at the end of the section there, in verses 13 and 14, Paul specifically talks about the Ephesians here and their belief. And that's where we pick up from as we enter our section today. All right, Paul has talked about how he shows love to the general Christian, but now he's talking specifically about the Ephesians here and their relationship with God now that they're saved. And the first thing he has to say to these Ephesians in 15 is that, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. Now that's not to say Paul only knew about Ephesus and Ephesians by what he heard. All right, he himself had actually lived there for about three and a half years. From Acts 19.10, we know they spent two full years teaching and preaching at the school of Tyrannus. So Paul undoubtedly knew the Ephesian church intimately. But the thing is, Paul was actually a prisoner in Rome when he wrote this letter. And so unfortunately, he couldn't see their faith and their love firsthand. But he got it secondhand, perhaps through letters or uh, maybe some visitors. Acts 28.30 tells us he was allowed visitors. But regardless how he heard about their faith and love, the more important thing is his reaction in verse 16, where he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Obviously, being in prison, Paul's not there to help teach and strengthen this church. But as it turns out, that was okay. The church was still thriving. And for Paul, that was worth being thankful for. Because for him, it wasn't about being the leader that everyone looked up to. It was never about Paul's own glory and all of this. It was about the church. It was about fostering a true faith in the people, whereby they had a true relationship with God. One where they could, they could go on out and be independent of Paul and not fall back into sin after he'd left. And Paul had equipped them as best he could. He says in Acts 20.20 20, that, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was possible. Shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable. These guys were as well equipped as, he could, as they could be. It's kind of like being a parent. All right? we, uh, we parents, we want to raise our kids and we want to teach them so that they can become mature enough to continue on without us around. We don't want to be raising toddlers forever. I certainly do not want to be. I venture to say, you know, we'd consider ourselves failures if our kids were 40 years old and they couldn't make it on their own. The goal in being the leader of a church is to help believers grow in Christ to the point where they can grow in Christ independently of you. And so even though Paul is in prison, he can take so much joy in how healthy this church is that it says there in 16 that he doesn't cease to give thanks for them. He is overjoyed that this church is thriving on its own, that he doesn't have to be there to spoon-feed them truth. It's a continual, unending source of joy for him. But then we get to verses 17 to 19 here, and Paul prays something that's maybe a little bit unexpected. And it's a long prayer, so I'll break it up into two parts, A and B. He prays for the Ephesians in part A, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. In part B, 
that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. So we'll look at part A first. And the first thing I want us to notice is the word for hearts there at the end and when it says having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Well, hearts comes from the Greek word, and I forgot to look up the pronunciation on this, but hearts comes from the Greek word dianoa, um, at least what my app says. And the word actually means deep thought, exercising the imagination, the mind, or your understanding. And so the translation heart may be a little bit confusing. An easier to grasp translation might be understanding or mind if your Bible has one of those. The eyes of your understanding enlightened. So just keep that in the back of your noggin as we carry on. But moving past translations, if you were to summarize in a word what Paul wants in part A, a good word might be growth. Paul wants growth in the Ephesians' knowledge of God, which is more than just facts, by the way. It's knowing him as a father-to-child relationship. Paul wants growth and knowing God intimately as Christ allowed us to. You know, the veil was torn so we can have that intimate relationship with God now. And he wants growth in their understanding of part B, which we'll get into in a moment. Now that's all fine and dandy, but a good question to ask is why would Paul pray this? Don't get me wrong, it's not that it's a bad prayer, but Paul doesn't just put random things in his letters to fill them up. There's purpose behind his words. So why is he praying for these Ephesians to grow deeper as Christians? And I think the answer is because the Ephesians needed to grow. They were undoubtedly Christian. They had the sealing spirit in verses 13 and 14, and the church was thriving. But you read through the entire book of Ephesians, and you'll note that a lot of the book shows Paul's hope for growth. Chapter 3, verses uh, 17 to 19, there's another prayer on it. In verse 17, Paul asks that Christ dwell in their hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. He wants them to be able to come to a point where they can comprehend Christ's love so they can be filled with his fullness. And then Paul gives the church in uh, chapter 4, verses 17 till 521, some practical ways to grow in leading lives pleasing to God. Be angry and do not sin in 426. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking in 5.4. But some key verses from this section here are Chapter 4, verses 22 and 23, which state that you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made anew in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self. And when he says you were taught, he isn't lying. Remember, Paul lived in Ephesus about three and a half years, which is longer than any other church, by the way. And he had taught them everything they needed. As I mentioned earlier in Acts 20.20, 20, Paul says, I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable. And in verse 27, 
I did not shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God. These Ephesians had been given everything. But we find in our passage that Paul is still praying for them to know God better and to understand the foundational principles of Christianity in Part B. They did not seem to be growing the way that Paul had hoped. And what's crazy is that the Ephesians actually did fall away. You'll remember from, uh, from Dan's series on the Timothys that Timothy was sent to Ephesus a couple of years after this letter. But even after Paul's three and a half years in Ephesus, and this letter, and Timothy being sent there, they fall away. Revelation 2, verses 4 and 5, talks about the Ephesian church and how it has abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. And it's funny because verses 2 and 3 there in Revelation say that they do works and they're known for hating evil, enduring hardships, and calling out false prophets. But they'd forgotten the relationship. They'd abandoned the love. They rode slack in working to maintain and grow a relationship with God. And this, this is what Paul was praying against. He wants them to know God better and to grow in their understanding. He wants their relationship to grow and to deepen. And I can't say for sure what may have tipped Paul off to them needing this prayer. I mean, Ephesus was a wealthy city. They burned uh, something like 50,000 days worth of wages and sorcery books. In modern-day terms, that would be about $6.1 million worth. And we know from Matthew 19.24 that it's hard for a rich man to enter heaven. So maybe it was their wealth that began pulling them away from knowing God. It's hard to know for sure. But regardless, being a Christian naturally means constant growth in your relationship with God. It means constantly getting to know him in his ways better, even if you know him pretty good now. Nobody knows him fully. I, I may know Elissa, my wife, uh, through and through, but it was just a few weeks ago that I learned her absolute favorite drink from Starbucks, all right? a cold foam ice cap with cinnamon sprinkled on top. All right? And you can jot that down in your notes too. It's probably the most important lesson you'll learn today. But, uh, but anyone who's married in this room will admit they don't know every single thing about their spouse. All right? And if we don't know everything about the most important person in our lives, how can we expect to know everything about God? There's always room to know him better and to grow in him and understand him on a deeper level. But that's part A of this prayer. A prayer for growth to know God better and to grow in our understanding. Part B here is actually kind of a three-point prayer on some of the foundational principles of Christianity. Paul wants them first to have the eyes of their hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Now, what is this hope we're called to? Plain and simple, it's Christ. All right, Christ is where we put our hope. And it even says here in Ephesians in chapter 1, verse 12. And that's it. All right, there's no other substitute for our hope in Christ. No other place to put our hope in. You don't put your hope in the pastor. 
You don't put hope in your own goodness. You don't put hope in some tech to transfer your consciousness into a computer so you never die. All right? It is Christ or bust. He's the only hope we've got to have our, sin, our sins cleansed and to enter into a good relationship with God. He's the only hope we have to avoid a spiritual death. And through him, we can approach God, who is now known to us as Father, free from the law and its regulations of the Old Testament. Christ is our hope. The second thing he wants us to know is what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Now, this is a bit of a a troublesome one because there's two interpretations. One is that God himself gets an inheritance and that inheritance is us. And the riches in this case would be the pride and honor that a believer can feel in being cherished so dearly by God. The other interpretation is that God has an inheritance to give, and he gives it to the saints, and it's this rich, amazing inheritance. Now, I myself, I subscribe to the second interpretation, as do roughly 60-ish percent of the commentaries I read, and I do so because it just fits better in the context of the letter and the three points in this prayer. Ephesians talks more about an inheritance than any other New Testament book. And each other time, it's clearly an inheritance for the saints. And in a moment, I'll explain how it links with the hope we just looked at and the upcoming power verse. But uh, but let's first ask, what might that inheritance be? Peter would describe it as unperishable, undefiled, and unfading in 1 Peter 1.4. Hebrews 19 Uh, or 9, verse 15, would call it eternal. And so what is it? It's an eternal life with God. It's getting to be clothed with the imperishable new body, free from pain, age, and decay. Getting to live in a world that's not battered and harassed and ruled over by Satan. Free from temptation, sorrow, sickness, evil, and death. But most importantly, It's getting to be physically in God's presence forever, getting to be with him forever. It is most definitely a glorious inheritance that ought to be desired. And the final point of this three-point prayer here is that we may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the work of his great might. But you may have caught it already that Paul gets a a little bit caught up in talking about power here. So I'll read what he continues on with. He goes on to say that it's the same power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every power that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So let's put this all together. Christ, just before he died, had all the sins of the world attached to him. All right? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin 
so that we might become the righteousness of God. And then 1 John 2, 2 says, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours also, but also for the sins of the whole world. All right? So Christ had all the sin of the world attached to him, and then he died this horrific death. He died like any other man would, but with a billion times the sin attached to him. Logically, at that moment, when he had all that sin attached to him, he would have been the least likely candidate candidate to be resurrected. If we didn't know the whole story, but all we knew that there was this guy who had the whole world's sins attached to him and he died, we'd expect this guy to stay dead. But that's not what happened with Jesus. He was raised from the dead. He was pulled away from death. And not only that, he was raised and he was not brought back to earth. He was brought to heaven, a place far better than earth. And he was seated at the right hand of God the Father himself. And he was given a position billions of pegs higher than any other powers conceivable. Christ went from the lowest position to the highest. It's quite the change. So now think about this. If God exerted enough power to raise the person who had the most sin ever attached to him and put him in that position right beside him, if God took the person with the most sin attached and seated him beside himself, does he not also have power enough to give us that glorious inheritance, that eternal life that we desire? We only ever had our own sin attached to us, and it's been wiped clean by Jesus. So there's no reason to think God doesn't have the power to give us that eternal life we desire, to give us that inheritance. And if he he can give us that eternal life we desire, then is it not worth putting our hope in Christ, the man who took our sins away and died so we could attain that inheritance? After all, I mean, who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Romans 8, 24 and 25. Our hopes are not yet fulfilled, and we do not yet have our inheritance. But God has the power to fulfill our hope and to give us an inheritance unlike any other. Paul wants the Ephesians to understand this. He wants them to understand these truths fully and believe in them. So that's that's part B of his second prayer of this prayer. And combined, parts A and B make for one amazing prayer for growth, relationally and in understanding. And they're not bad prayers for us to pray as well. In fact, you know, they're kind of a good model to follow if, you know, I don't know, have anyone you ever want to pray for. If you ever want to pray for someone else's spiritual life, this is a great model for how to pray for them. So why not show love and care for a person who has grown slack, maybe, in their Christian walk and ask God to redouble his efforts to help that person grow closer to him? It seems like a no-brainer to me. But, uh, but that's, that's all I've got for today. So maybe let's get some lessons up here and we'll have a conversation. All right, lesson one. A good leader in the church wants to help believers grow in Christ 
to the point where they can grow in Christ independently of them. I totally forgot to write cross-references down for these. Darn. <laughs> well, this passage is a great cross-reference then for that lesson. <laughs> a good leader in the church wants to help believers grow in Christ to the point where they can grow in Christ independently of them. It's not about the leader. It's not about what can, what can a pastor, what can a leader get from the church. It's not about how can a pastor subdue the, uh, the, the congregation so that they feel they need him. It's not about that at all. It's not about a pastor getting glory. It's about the church. It's about Christians growing in God. So, so yeah, that's pretty much lesson one there. Lesson two, the expectation for all believers is constant growth in their relationship with God. Drew, once in a uh, Bible study years ago, said something that I'm never going to forget. You can't be on one side of the fence with God. Uh, Sorry, let me say this. Let me try again. There's not God's side, the devil's side, and then the fence. The devil owns the fence. You're either on God's side or you're on Satan's side. You're not on the fence. You can't be, um, you can't just be neutral in your relationship with God. You're either growing or you're falling back. All right, the expectation and the hope for us and hope for Paul for these Ephesians here is constant growth. Lesson number three. We can hope in Christ and eagerly await our eternal inheritance. Because God has the power to fulfill our hope and give us an inheritance. God is all-powerful. He made us. He made the universe. He made everything. But he also raised Christ from the dead, who had all the sins attached to him, and put him at his right hand. God has infinite power. And so we can trust in him. We can put our hope, our confidence, our faith in him to fulfill his promises, to fulfill his word, to be our father. And lesson number four, prayer for people who've become slack in keeping up their relationship with God is the loving thing to do. Paul is praying for these Ephesians here. He wants them to go ahead and to grow in Christ, to build their relationship up with him. And so, it's a great model for us as well. If we know people who are um, growing slack in their relationship, why not pray for them? Use this as a model. We're not meant to keep Christ to ourselves. We're not meant to try and just have a monopoly on him. Christ is big enough for the whole world. Christ can have a relationship with the whole world. We should want that. That's, our, that's what the Great Commission is. Go and spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. We want people to know God. So pray for them. 